Uh, you know, Advent, as Advent's kicking off, Advent's an interesting thing. Um, Advent, we typically think of as like a Christmas thing, you know, uh, for obvious reasons. That's when uh, we, our, our sermon series typically revolve around Christmas during Advent and all of that. Um, but Advent historically was not a Christmas event. That's not what it was about. The four weeks leading up to Christmas, the idea was uh, it was the anticipation of the second coming of Christ. That's what Advent is about, is the anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And the reason was, is because as we anticipate the second coming of Christ, we start to feel a little bit what it would have been like for those who were anticipating the first coming of Christ. And so that was the, the whole practice of Advent, was to get ourselves in that mindset. Now, pretty much it's become like four Christmas services that we have leading up to, to Christmas. But we're actually not doing that this time. Um, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to continue on with our Day in the Life series, um, and uh, we're going to stick with that series, but we're going to be having the Advent wreath, and obviously we're decorated in here for Christmas, and you have the Advent uh, reading, the booklet that I just talked about that you can be going through as well. Um, but our sermon series is going to stay um, a day in the life, and um, and then we'll have our Christmas services. You know, we have our Christmas Eve service here. Next week, there's some stuff. The kids will be doing some stuff here that they're practicing for. Um, and uh, and then on Christmas Day, you'll remember we're having a shared Christmas service at the Spring City United Methodist building. The, that congregation's no longer there, but we'll be in that building. We need volunteers for that. Please see me if you're willing to help out. Uh, you know, parking attendant, welcome reading, that sort of thing. Um, let me know if you're willing to volunteer. Uh, we, uh, we have a planning meeting this Tuesday, a community planning, leading, planning meeting, and we need some help um, uh, not being at that meeting, but I need to, to know if we're going to have uh, volunteers to help with that, so let me know if you're willing to help out. Um, today we're uh, picking up on our series, A Day in the Life, and we're going to do what I was planning on doing last week, um, and I was sick, so uh, thanks for... Uh, grace in that, uh, presumably, um, and uh, I, that was, I got hit with strep throat on Saturday night, and I was going to be no good on Sunday morning, so uh, uh, I'm going to go back to that message, and t- this series has largely been about lesser-known characters in Scripture. This is not a lesser-known character in Scripture. This is, uh, this is a headliner. This is uh, one of the you know this is your this is one of the actors that you actors or actresses that you pay a lot to get in your it's a feature film actor you know uh, this is Simon Peter uh, and uh, so we're going to be talking about Simon Peter today and I'm looking forward to talking about him so uh, join me in prayer please Father, we thank you for your love for each and every one of us in this room. And when we look at the lives of these individuals in Scripture, we realize that uh, from Old Testament prophetesses to uh, uh, a New Testament apostle to uh, a little lady who's tucked in the corner of the temple dropping her two pence in in the plate, you see things and understand our lives uh very, very 
acutely. You are, you have such an eye for us, God, and your heart is so far toward us. And when we look at these different people and look at all the different stories of how you're working in these unique individual lives, God, I just ask for the continued encouragement that our eyes and our hearts would be open to the fact that the God of the universe has his eye on us right now, on each and every one of us, that you have your eye on us, God. And that you just continue to bless us because we need encouragement in that, God. We need uh, faith in that. And our faith is really weak and little. um, And we tend to see our lives, you know, this is just a prayer of repentance. That we tend to see our lives from our own vantage point. And we ask that, God, you would help us and grow us in this series and today in this message to see our lives a little more from your vantage point. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Simon Peter... uh, it's one of those double names, and the scripture has these double names. And double names are really a, kind of a big deal in scripture. Uh, sometimes they're, they're names where you hear both the names together, but lots of times it's like they were originally called something, and then their name transitioned into something else. All of us know that, um, I would imagine, know that uh, in uh, ancient culture, and probably in many cultures in our world beyond the uh, just the states here, that names have, uh, the meanings behind names are such a big deal, an enormous deal. Um, and so in scripture, when someone gets renamed, that's built into the context of names are already a really big deal. So now when you get renamed, you really got to tune in to what that's all about, right? So when mom and dad named me, they named me this because they were thinking this. But when God says, no, that's not how I want to name you. I want to name you like this. It's like, wow, man, God like really wanted to make a point. And so when Abram becomes Abraham or when Sarai becomes Sarah or when uh, 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 Jacob becomes what? Israel, that's a really big deal, you know? Um, And uh, so when you see a guy named Simon becoming Peter, this is a very, very big deal. So what's the narrative on that? What's the story behind that? Why is that a big deal? And that's uh, what I actually want to get into a little bit today. So Simon was raised in the, in the northern part of Israel. And you know that in uh, Israel, there's two distinct sections. You know, in, in America, we have very distinct sections, don't we? The, the, the south is different than the Pacific Northwest. The Midwest is definitely different than the Northeast. And there's different feels about them, and we kind of have stereotypes um, that go along with that. Well, in Israel, there was the north and the south. And the south was the religious center. And it was the political center. That's where Jerusalem was. But it is, was not the economic center. The economic center was up north. That's where all the business and all the industry was flowing. So the people who were up north were making money, but they weren't the people who had uh, the governmental or religious influence over uh, the country. And uh, so Peter, Simon, and his brother Andrew lived up north. They lived in Galilee. The lower section is called Judea. The northern section is called Galilee. They lived on a lake called Gennesaret, which uh, we know better as the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the Sea of Galilee is where much of the industry took place. And they obviously had a pretty decent business, and uh, they were in the fishing business. And uh, Peter appears to be kind of the leader of that among he and his brother and also two of their buddies, James and John. And uh, so they had these boats, and they uh, would work together in business together. 
They would have been average Joe guys. Everything about them says they're average Joe guys, you know, uh, whether that's uh, fishing or swinging a hammer or whatever the stereotype was for them. Definitely, if they lived here today, they would be Eagles fans is the takeaway. That's the, the big thing you need to know. Um, they were just guys, you know. That's what these guys were. They were just guys. They were outdoorsmen. Um, they were just guys, you know, um, whatever that, that meant then, whatever the stereotypes were or whatever. But that, that's the kind of crew that these guys were. And um, they were blue-collar, but, but not, uh, not in any way impoverished. They seemed to be doing just fine, um, but, but blue-collar average guys. Now, along with that, they lived in a religious society. So they would have gone to school um, in a school that was both uh, kind of a public school, it is what it is, but it was also very religious. I mean, that, that was, those things were deeply integrated in Jewish society. So when Simon went to school, he would have learned about the founding fathers of his faith, the founding fathers of his country, and his ancestors, and they all would have been the same person, right? So when you think about uh, Abraham or David or the Apostle Paul, they are like people who we look back at as people in our faith, as champions of the faith back then, or particularly Jesus, you know? And we look back at these people and see them as the founders of our faith. And then when you look at the U.S. and you think about founding fathers of George Washington, or you think about Abraham Lincoln, or you think about these people in history who are founding fathers of our nation, and then if you do any genealogy and you know anything about the country of origin that you come from and where your lineage is, and now if you take all those three different parts and you put them into one and make it one person, that's the way it was for them. Isn't that weird? So like George Washington is also the Apostle Paul is also my great-great-great-great-grandfather, you know? And that's the way this was because Abraham was the father of their nation, their heritage, their family. Moses was the founder of their nation. You know, and really when you get to David, I mean, that's like David, David's the champion of their nation. And when it comes to their faith, I mean, obviously mo- they're, they're all integrated. But when you look at like Elijah, the prophets and all, and they're all, it's all the same story. And they understood their identity the same way, who they were as people. It was all integrated. It was very, very different than us. You know, we have our family here and our faith here and our country here. And uh, Sometimes we, the lines get blurred and it gets weird and all that stuff, you know. Um, but for them, it was supposed to be all integrated. And so when they went to school, when Simon went to school and he was learning about all these people, he knew where he came from and he knew where things were supposed to be and what it was supposed to be about. And there was no doubt. And there was one thing. I mean, when they look back, you know how cool it must have been to look back in your nation and in your family and in your faith and be like, David dropped Goliath, and that's your heritage. I mean, for me, that's just about like, you know, we made it to the Super Bowl one time or two times and we bailed, you know, and like we, Donovan McNabb got that look in his eyes and couldn't, you know, he choked. And, but these guys could look back at, at their heritage and be like, David dropped Goliath, and that's my, that's my forefather and founder of the faith. And, uh, and the culmination of all of that is they're looking forward to a day when they have a champion who they're all looking for. They all know that the best is yet to come. 
that all, whatever's in the blood, whatever's in the genes, whatever's in the faith, whatever the national hope was, all of it culminates in this one guy who's coming, this one champion who's coming, and he is going to be the Messiah. And that's what they're looking for. That's what it's all about. Well, a couple of these guys find out that there's this guy who's been hanging around, who's wearing leather, who probably has dreads, and so yeah, like leather-wearing, dreadlock, out in the wilderness, eating whatever, definitely a prophet. Fit the stereotype for him. They start hanging out with this guy, and they're followers of John the Baptist. And as they're following John the Baptist, and presumably all four of these guys are a part of that. We know that, uh, that they're connected with John the Baptist. How they get connected, we don't really know. Um, the ministry centers are in different places, but they apparently make the trek to go out and hang out with uh, John the Baptist on a regular basis and follow him. And that's because underneath of, uh, of their life of fishing is a deep hunger a deep, deep hunger to see the fruition of God's promises taking place in their life. They want to see this happen. And honestly, that, I, I, we can't under, underestimate how big of a deal the synergy of like family and, and church and nation and all of that being together was for them. I mean, looking for this hero is everything to them. They're champion. And so as they go after hanging out with John the Baptist, he preaches this singular message. What's the message that John the Baptist preaches all the time? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a point to that message that would have started to permeate in their minds. And what that is, is that God is trying to do something and I won't be ready to receive it unless my posture is in the right, unless I'm postured to receive it. And, you know, sometimes God wants to do something profound in our lives, but we're not at a place where we're ready to receive what it is that God wants to do. You know, we know that we are, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. Even though we are completely saved by grace, there was a baptism of repentance that John the Baptist was coming and saying, turn from your evil ways and get your life straight and break off the stuff that's going on because God is going to do something new in your day. And unless you're cleaned up enough, you're not even going to be able to receive it. You're not even going to be able to see it. The kingdom of God is about to burst out. So all the patterns of sin, living as if God is not here, living as if you're on your own, repent from all of that, get back to a place of anticipation because God's going to do something. And for some of us, we're waiting for God to move in our lives or move in our society or move in our families. And it may be that right here, right now, God is moving profoundly and powerfully, but we are not postured in a way that we can see it or receive it or acknowledge it even though he's all around us for some of us where we need to start is where simon needed to start hanging out with the person who's saying repent that pattern you're living in isn't going to get you to a place where you're going to see jesus when he comes walking in the basic patterns you got to get this stuff worked out so that you can receive what it is that god wants to do if you are in that place today and what i'm going to do right here right now we're going to pray Join me in this prayer. Father God, 
We don't want to be hung up on the junk that keeps us from seeing what you have going on. You are now, you have come and you abide among us and you're all around us and there's no holding you back, but we know that we get tainted. I ask that for each one of us, God, right now, that you would convict us of the areas that if John the Baptist was standing here right now and knew that God had a plan for our lives and for our church and for our nation or whatever, that God, we would hear from you where you're saying, Turn, repent, and that, God, you would just do that. Bring us back to that clean slate to hear from you. We know that we can't be righteous on our own or earn your approval, but we do ask, God, that you would clean us out to receive what you have. In the name of Jesus, amen. So um, from there, this amazing thing happens. They're hanging out with John, and one day the story changes. Turn to John chapter 1. This book is written by one of the eyewitnesses here, you know. This is John himself writing this. Starting in verse 35. The story changes on this day. The next day, John, was stand- this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Everything here, this word behold is such an important word. The word behold is a word that is uh, step back and take it all in. Engage, like step back, look, behold is like, okay, like I'm doing my thing and yeah, I saw the nice Christmas lights and I'm doing my thing. No, 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 stop. Behold, take it in, take it in. This is a uniquely human quality. Um, It's not utilitarian, it's not pragmatic, it's not just like, okay, I saw the light, what good is that for me? It's not that, it's like taking it in, beholding it. And what John has been doing is everything he's been doing is preparing for the moment when these people who are following him, where he's like, okay, you've been repenting, now, in your life with everything else going on, stop Behold, take it in, okay? Behold, the Lamb of God. I love this. If you don't think that John is an amazing prophet, no one, no one in the whole scene has any clue about a thing called atonement, substitutionary atonement of a Messiah who would be a suffering servant who would die on a cross for our sin. There isn't anyone who had any clue that that's what the Messiah was about. But John the Baptist right here says, Lamb of God. He already knows the sacrificial things that Christ is going to have to do, or at least it's coming out of his mouth, you know? And so he says, behold the Lamb of God. Now, I love this. Right away, two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It's like a a formation of of, uh, geese, you know, coming through, and they're all following the leader. And then he says this, they just peel off, you know? And later's like, they're following John, but John has... He's done such a good job of pointing them toward God that when it comes time for them to peel off, they don't even think about it. Just, and John doesn't say a word and they just peel off. That's good leadership. That is good work. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? 
okay, so this is kind of what they're essentially saying is we want to follow you. That was kind of a, that was a, a, uh, a pickup line, <laughs> you know, like we want to follow you here. He said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw he, where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, that's 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Simon Peter was not known as Simon Peter at this point. This is retrospective. So it's looking back and telling us that was Simon Peter's brother. He was just known as Simon at the time. He first found his own brother, he first found his own brother Simon. So Simon was not there when this happened. Andrew was. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah. Again, all the culmination. I mean, this is like we cannot imagine. I, I don't know if you've ever seen someone get starstruck by seeing someone famous, you know, or something like that. But this is like everything you could possibly be anticipating. This guy just shows up. So here's the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looks at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. Okay. 400 years of silence. The nation hasn't heard from God. Thousands of years waiting for the culmination of God's kingdom, which will come in the person of one person, this Messiah. They find the Messiah. The Messiah comes into the scene and he comes walking up and here is Simon. He calls out Simon's name. Presumably that was just prophetic. Jesus does this. He names people. He's, he's naming what everyone else knows about this guy, but they don't know how Jesus knows it. And he says, you are Simon, son of Jonah. Okay, how'd you know that? That's not the important part. Here's the important part. You will be called Cephas, Peter. Now that's future, future tense. You will be called. I don't know about you, but every time I read this, I'm like, it must have been terrible trying to live with Peter after that moment. Because you know that he's looking at Andrew like, dude, how long have I been trying to tell you that I'm the rock? You know, like how long? Like you, it took the Messiah to come and tell you that I'm the rock. You know, and it, it must have just been because you know there's just the, there's so guys, you know, and there's so much ego dripping in these guys. We see it all through the narrative of the, of the scriptures. And the very first time that Jesus encounters him, the thing he says is, I know who they say you are. You're Big Simon, right? I got something for you. Your name right now is Simon, but you will be called the rock. Man, is that a play on an ego or what? I mean, in some senses, it's got to be. Jesus knows that he, he knows Simon inside out way more than Simon knows himself. So he knows that whatever comes out of his mouth will be received a certain way. He's got to know that you cannot, in front of his brother, call him the rock the first time you see him and not have that do something that swells this guy, right? And he's hooked. Peter is hooked. He's like, oh, I like this guy. This guy's, this guy's legit, man. He might be the Messiah, you know? And he just starts to follow him. And um, underneath of it, Jesus wasn't flattering him. He wasn't lying to him. The truth was, is that's what he would be called. Here's the catch. Simon had no idea why he would be called that. And what 
the, the, the story in his mind that he was probably creating in his imagination for what it was that Jesus was saying versus what Jesus is actually saying were two very, very different stories. In the end, Peter was going to become the rock. Andrew, Simon was going to become the rock. But what it was going to look like, how he's going to get there, and what that looks like at the end are two very different things. The rest of the story in Scripture of Peter is the working out of what it means to transition from being Simon to becoming Peter. And it's a different story than he anticipates. Um, flip over with me to Luke chapter 5. The next encounter Luke's version. If you read just if you just read the Gospel of John, looking for the stories about Peter, you will realize that John loved writing his gospel, talking about Peter. I mean, Peter just gets dragged all through the mud in the Gospel of John. Like, and so John, we know, is the young man on the totem pole in the fishing business. Simon is the one in charge. So this is like little guy here writing about the guy who was his boss, and he watched him go through this whole journey with Jesus. It is awesome reading the Gospel of John that way. It's a lot of fun. Now we're in the book of Luke. He's more clinical about the whole thing. So uh, we're in chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, Jesus has already been doing ministry, by the way. Um, And so on one occasion, uh, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing at the Lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Why were they washing their nets? Because they were done. Nets were nasty. Got to wash them all out, clean them up. So here they are, they're washing their nets. I think that's an important part. Um, Verse 3. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets. Why would that be a problem? What's that? So they, they fished all night, and he's about to say that. Anything else that the text already told us that would make that a problem? He just got done cleaning his nets. Are you kidding me? Okay, so like, and this is, and this is an important point. When God asks us to do something, it is very rarely convenient. And oftentimes we try to define God's will in our lives by when, when all the stars align and, okay, this is going to work out. Oh, that must be the will of God. It finally is going to work out. So many times when Jesus calls us to do stuff, it's just a principle that he says, this needs to be happening in your life. Yeah, but there's no way to work that in my life. Not really my problem. Figure it out. Honestly, that's when we look at things like it's our call to feed the poor, to care for the needy, if that's not happening in my life, that's not because God hasn't created the opportunity yet. That's because I don't have faith to figure out how to be obedient and shape my life accordingly. That's not a like beat ourselves up and feel shame over it. It's about when we want to see God do amazing things, then we have to find a way to get our lives to submit to God's direction. And it's rarely easy. It takes some moments where it's like, I just got done washing the nets. It could not be the will of God for me to dip these back into the water again. He wouldn't want me to waste that time. 
Actually, he waited till I washed the nets to ask me that. And when he had finished, uh, sorry, uh, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Moment of faith. Faith requires trusting. It's not just believing something intellectually. It's trusting and following. So, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help. That was probably John and James. And they came and filled, or maybe it was the older brothers. Maybe it was, uh, it was probably Peter and James in the one boat and the little brothers were over in the other boat, Andrew and John. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so the story continues of God knowing how to hook a guy. I mean, what it is is that uh, Simon, who had been obviously the one in charge and who knew how everything worked, and I have a feeling that Simon was very much a know-it-all. And in this moment, he came to first recognition, I do not know it all. And I am in the presence of someone who knows a lot more and has a lot more power. And in that moment, he becomes broken. And this is the first step in the journey from being Simon to being Peter. That he doesn't become the rock by getting stronger. He becomes the rock by trusting in the one who is stronger. And so when he first trusts Jesus by putting the nets down, even though it's untimely and experiences this, there's a whole other level of power and possibility that he didn't know existed when he went beyond himself and started depending on Jesus. In that moment, Jesus calls him to another kind of fishing assignment, which is uh, fishing for men instead of fishing for fish. And again, I think that he's calling him to a higher purpose. And uh, there's inside of Simon, a young guy, presumably, like, man, there's something powerful that can happen in my life. I want to go after that. All right, so the rest of the story, um, I'll, we'll look at one more text, but I'm not going to, the rest of it I can't look at. We can't, there's so much stuff on Simon. We can't take the time to go through the different texts about him. So um, the only other one that I'm going to touch on uh, is uh, from Matthew, and we'll get there in a minute. But what happens is um, the the rest of the story works out of a strong, tough Simon trying to learn what it means to submit to um, to Jesus. And so they go one day out on a boat. You know this story. Um, they they've been on the other side of the lake doing ministry, and they're on their way back. Jesus stayed behind to pray, and we all know that uh, amazing thing about Jesus where even though he's God of the universe, stops all the time to talk to his father. And if he does that, it should be a reminder to us that if we haven't gotten any time alone with the Lord recently, um, regardless of every other thing about Simon and Peter in this message today, one takeaway, if we haven't gotten time alone with the Lord recently, make that a first priority, right? I mean, Jesus does it and he models it. So he stays on the one side, hanging out with the Lord. They all get on the boat and they're traveling to the other side. Jesus in the middle of the night comes walking out on the water and uh, is walking past the boat. They all freak out. They think he's a ghost. And then they're like, what is it? They find out it's Jesus and Simon's instinct. What is it? 
if it's really you, call me out onto the water with you. Now, what's interesting about this is that he knows that things only work when Jesus says it. That's what he's learned already. Like if I said, lower your nets on the other side, I'm not going to get fish. But when Jesus says it, it's going to work. So Jesus, call me out onto the water, which is a really important thing for our prayer life that we need to know. That when we want something, us just praying for it, it's one thing. But when we say, Jesus, please make this happen. He has the authority and we're calling the one who has authority. And so that's why we can agree with others about something that Jesus wants and have massive confidence that it can happen if it's something that Jesus is declaring. So anyway, he says, call me out onto the water and he starts walking on the water. I, I still don't know what that would be like when he steps out on the boat. Like, was it squishy? Was it hard? Was it like there was cement right like an inch under? Were his boots wet or not? You know, that whole thing. I don't know any of it. What I know is like we know the story as his face is locked onto Christ and as he's coming toward Christ and as his focus is there, everything's fine and then he's distracted, right? And he sees, and the, the, the scripture says he sees the wind. And again, I have no idea how you see wind. Um, but he sees the wind. I, I, I literally, I don't know if that's just a figure of speech. All the commentaries don't give you anything on it, or if he actually literally could see the wind and if there was something really weird going on. Either way, he flips out, and he starts to sink. Peter does the right thing. Simon does the right thing, um, which is he calls to Jesus right away. Help! Help! He knows who to call to, and it says immediately Jesus grabbed his arm. I don't know. Some of us, if we had the power of Jesus, would have been tempted to let him go a little further. But Jesus doesn't. He's kind. He doesn't mess with him. Just immediately grabs him. You know, I got you. And then he gives him his other name. You know what his other name is? You see it all through the story of John. All through the Gospel of John. O ye of... He calls him little faith. And he does this, if you watch the narrative of John talking about Peter, he calls him this all the time, little faith, little faith, little faith, little faith. And for us, that could sound like it's a mocking term. But Jesus says faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. You got a little bit of faith, and Peter's the one walking on water. Hey, that's a little bit of faith. Now, why'd you doubt? That could have been amazing, much more, you know, but. Little faith, way to go. Same thing happens. Just the next time they're on the boat on the way back from the other side of the lake. They just fed the 5,000 and 4,000, all this stuff, and they're headed back across the lake. And then they, uh, Jesus is talking about beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, and they don't know what he's talking about, and they start thinking it's about bread. And Jesus says again, little faith. Do you have no idea yet what I'm talking about? And why does Jesus say that? The reason is, is because he says, right after that, he says, did you not see how many people I fed? And did you not see how many baskets were left over? Did you not do the math and understand what that means? Because underneath of that, there's all this deep meaning behind those numbers, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that when there were seven, seven loaves, that that meant something. When there was 12 baskets left over, these are biblical numbers and they mean something. And what he's saying is the yeast of the Pharisees, these religious leaders, their day is done. You are 12 apostles with 12 baskets who are called to feed my people. I am building my church through you 12. But they missed it. They missed it. And so he's saying, little faith, you're not in tune with the kingdom of God that's being built right now. And so he keeps giving him this nickname. Now, a whole story for Simon 
and, and for the rest of them, is whether or not they can actually get to the place where instead of trying to project their image on God, their desires on God, if they can actually hear God for what he's saying and submit themselves to that and just receive it for what it is. And the culminating moment, the real defining moment for this happens in Matthew chapter 13. <coughs> Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now Caesarea Philippi, if, if there's the northern and southern section. Caesarea Philippi is way north, and it's outside of Israel. And this area, Caesarea Philippi, you can still go there today, and there's this big cave. And in the cave, the cave is about, the whole of the cave is about the size of this wall here. And out around it on the rock face are all these carvings of idols that, um, that are ancient idols that are still carved into the rock today. You can see them all. And it's this pagan worship center, and presumably Jesus is right there. And so in this whole center of pagan worship, that they, what they tried to do with this wall is have all the deities of the world represented on this wall. So here in front of all of these deities, Jesus asks this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So all these gods that are carved on stone, there's one living God, Yahweh, who's God over all of them, and you are his son. Now this, that, that, that would have been as, as amazing as it was that John the Baptist figured out that he was the lamb of God. Much more amazing is the fact that Peter is starting to understand the deity of Jesus. That he's actually the son of God. Unbelievable statement. And that's why Jesus is like, like I picture Jesus being like doing a, whoa, like, did you seriously just say that? Like, whoa, how did you hear that? And, and so this is how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For fle-, and notice he calls him that, Simon Barjona, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are learning to hear God. You are starting to come awake into the kingdom, man. You get it? That everyone else is seeing this. Some are saying Elijah. They're trying to read their Bible and figure out how it fits. And their minds are trying really hard. But there's something inside of you that the only way you could have possibly known this, the only explanation for how you figured out who this is, is because you were tapped in somewhere in your spirit. You heard from the living God and he's spoken to you. That was not the work of men. That was the work of God. Simon, you're getting it. You're hearing it. Way to go. Awesome response. I tell you, you, what's it say? Are Peter. Remember what he said when he first saw him? You will be called Peter. And in this moment, he's like, how about it? You are Peter. Right now, you are the rock. You're standing on it, man. You are standing on it. You are a man of faith right now. You're not listening to the voices of people. You're tapping into God. You are a rock 
right now. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is amazing. There's a lot of different interpretation around what it means that the church is built on the rock there. Is that the rock of Peter's confession or is it the rock of Peter himself? And I think the answer is easily yes to both. The church is built, according to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Peter was the leader of the apostles. He was uh, the, the protege of Jesus. I mean, he's the one who Jesus poured into. He's the original apostle. Clearly, the church was built on this guy. It was also built on the confession and the faith that he embodied in this moment because the church is built on Christ. And what happens is every person who's a part of the living temple of God is a person whose life stops being centered around themselves and starts being centered on the cornerstone, which is Christ. And now all of a sudden you're built into the foundation and the church can be built upon you as well because it's not about Simon anymore. It's about Peter just became a rock because he just got founded on Jesus. And that's the way this thing works. All right, so, and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So any lie that's out there that stands against Christ. You'll be able to bust through lies, things that seemed like they were impossible, that natural law says can't happen. It's going to bust through all the gates of hell. All the lies are going to be busted down. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, as you keep reading, um, you know the next part, right? So he is now officially Peter. He's been named Peter, not just that he will be Peter. He's been named Peter. Here it is. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Are you offended by that? By the fact that someone would rebuke Jesus? Like... The, the fact that Peter somehow, once he got the name Peter, thought that he was entitled to rebuke Jesus. I, I, clearly what happens in this moment is that Peter like very quickly reverts to Simon-level behavior, even though he's been given the office of Peter, right? So uh, he um, all of a sudden is like, oh, So I'm this guy now who the church is being built on. And so since Jesus says I'm this guy, I have to figure out how to be this guy. Have you ever tried to live into a role instead of just being yourself? Have you ever tried to be like, okay, parenting should be this, this, and this. So I should try to figure out how to be this, this, and this. But you're not thinking about who you are in that mix. Or like you're at work and there's this role and you're trying to work into that role, but you're not being you. The biggest place where this happens is when we have an idea of what it means to be a Christian and we try to work really hard to figure out what it looks like to be a Christian instead of just being you in relationship with God and in relationship with other people. And that's what happens here. And so when Jesus says like, you know, I'm going to have to suffer and I'm going to have to die and Peter's like, yeah, we are not going to let that happen. Stop saying that you're discouraging the troops. You know, I'm going to be your advisor now. And, um, Far be it from you, Lord, he says. This shall never happen to you. So whatever it is that Jesus is saying, he's actually questioning Jesus' words now. 
He thinks he has the authority to question Jesus' words. So he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. The exact opposite of the phrase that he had just received, right? So you didn't hear this stuff from man, from flesh and blood. You heard this from God. Now you're thinking about this in human terms. You're not trusting God. I don't know about you, but that journey of going from being Simon to being Peter, the journey of going from being a self-made person who just kind of reasons and takes care of my life. And if God wants to let me know anything, he'll let me know and we'll figure it out. But otherwise, I just kind of got this and I'll take the biblical principles and do the best I can to figure my life out. It's really easy to revert to that kind of thinking instead of being a person who's tapped in with the Lord and asking the Lord to be leading and guiding in every moment. And he's a perfect example of one moment, he's hearing from God and he's following the spirit and he's staying in step. And the next moment, he's reverted to the I'm in control kind of mindset. Story just gets nuts from there. And so uh, the, the real quick version, he fast forward over and over again, the little faith statements, and then you get to the upper room. The worst day of Peter's life. This is the worst day of Simon's life by far. You know what happens? He gets into the upper room and he's sitting there and Jesus pulls out the basin. He's horribly embarrassed. How do we miss this one? You know, and he feels shame. And so he's like, I'm going to be the one to hold out and be like, no, I'm not letting that happen. Jesus says, I got to wash your feet. And he says, well, then wash the whole thing. And I always, that for me is always that moment where I'm like, man, if I was in that moment and I'm Jesus, I'd just be like, dude, it's either too much or too little. Can you not just let me like do this, you know? And, but Jesus is so patient with him, you know? And he says, no, I got I to gotta wash your feet. And he does, but Peter's struggling inside. He's just boiling. And then there's, you know, as they're going through the dinner, then Jesus says, you're, you're all going to fall away. And he says, I'm not going to fall away. There's no way. And Jesus says, man, before the clock, before the rooster before the clock strikes 12, your glass slippers. Wait, what? Um, and so before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Peter just cannot handle that thought. He will not receive the words of God as true. He won't receive it. That's a lack of faith. That moment is a lack of faith. It's not just a lack of faith that he fell away. It's a lack of faith that he believed that Jesus was telling the truth. So then they walk out and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and they're praying. How many times does Jesus tell him to come, come back and tell him to join him in prayer? Three, and then, and so three times he falls asleep. Um, who's the smallest person in the Bible? Bildad the Shuhite? Actually, no, Peter, James, and John because they slept on their watch. They slept on their watch. Um, and so the, they, three times they, uh, three times they fall out with Jesus and they fail him. You know at this point, this is one of those days where things keep getting worse and worse and worse. So now everyone's, he wakes up as Jesus is saying, it's over, betrayer's here. Here comes Judas. Peter pulls out the sword and chops a guy's ear off because there is no way I'm letting it go down like this. Jesus rebukes him in front of everyone in his moment of distress. You know that this guy's ego is just getting... He is hating himself at this point. There is no way that he's leaving Jesus. And this little girl comes up to him and says, I know you, you're one of them. I don't think he's scared of a little girl. I think that he's like, there's no way I'm getting busted because I'm staying here. 
I am staying here. Ends justify the means. I don't even know him. You know, and he's still looking, and we know he's close enough to see Jesus because as the rooster crows and he's denied him the third time, we're told in the scripture that Jesus' eyes turn around and meet his eyes. And I don't know about you, but um, that for me, that's one of the most horrific moments in all of scripture. I just cannot even fathom what that look must have been like. Like to see Jesus knowing that he's going that way and knowing that I just bailed that hard on him and looking and seeing it and like, Wow, he was right. I completely failed. And knowing like the wheel's been set in motion and there's nothing I can do and I'm a mess. Um, And so he watches his savior die. Um, He watches his friend die. Um, Jesus, we know the amazing story is that he comes back to life. And for these guys, the resurrection and the death and resurrection doesn't mean the same thing that it does for us now. For us, this is the gospel and it's eternal life and it's all those things. I don't think they had any of that figured out yet. All they knew was that the man who they followed was not there, but then he was again. And it was very, very personal. You know, and it was very real. And here he is, and he's reconnected with Jesus. He's the fr- he gets to the tomb. He's, John outruns him, but he's the one who goes into the tomb, and he looks around, and he sees that it's empty. When, when Jesus sees Mary, he has to name Peter by name. He says, go and tell Peter and the apostles to meet me somewhere because he knows that Peter's feeling so much shame that he probably won't show up, and he doesn't feel like he's part of the group. And then he shows up and Peter's still in a, in a weird place. And so Peter decides to go fishing. And he's out in the boat fishing and he's got his buddies with him. And someone's on the beach and someone says, cast your nets on the other side. And he casts the nets on the other side like he did that first time. And you know how God works in patterns in your life or when God speaks to you a certain way. And so like the net hits Weight goes down, the boat almost sinks, and John just goes, it's him. And Peter does not ask to walk on water. (laughs) He doesn't care. It says he grabs his outer coat. He gets his coat on and dives into the water because he's like, I'm not coming back. And he just dives into the water and he chases because all he wants is to be with Christ. And he gets on the beach there with Christ, and there's this amazing moment where Jesus looks at him. And he says, so, Peter, do you love me? And he says, agape love, like, would you lay down your life for me? And Peter is a much more humble man at this point. And he doesn't say yes. What Peter says is he says, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. He's like, I know, you, you know, I like you more than I like anybody else, Jesus. But I will not say that I lay my life down for you. We all know the truth about that. And Jesus says, it's okay, feed my sheep. And he asks him again, yeah, but Peter, would you lay down your life for me? And he says, I love you. I like you a lot, you know. Feed my sheep. And then Jesus just turns it a little bit, gets that wound. He's going to clean out the wound for Peter. And he says, yeah, but Peter, do you actually like me? He says, do you phileo love me? I know you don't agape. I know you can't lay down your life for me, but do you really like me? And that's when Peter just falls apart. And he says, you know everything, God. You know that there is no one in this world who I admire or who I want or who I desire or who I follow more than you. I might not be able to say that I can lay down my life for you because I can't trust myself to be that strong. But you know that I want you, that I love you, that I'm here for you. And Jesus meets him there. And I just see this grin going all across Jesus' face. And he's like, finally we're here. We're a place where this isn't about being big Peter. 
where Simon knows who he is, a broken man who loves me, who wants to be with me, but can't handle the heat. And he says, now go feed my sheep. Oh, and by the way, someday you're going to die a martyr's death for me because you're going to be able to handle it now. It's just an amazing moment of restoration. And, um, you know, a few days later, we end up seeing Peter preach a message. 3,000 people come to Christ. He stands in front of the Pharisees when they're about to kill him. And he says, am I going to fear people or am I going to fear God? I don't care what you do to me. And he's completely transformed. And his whole life has changed. For each one of us, this is the takeaway as we leave today. Who we are is never determined by what we do. Who we are is determined by who God says we are. It's not who others say we are. It's not that thing that you hear from your past. It's not those, the sum of all the failures or the successes. None of that speaks to who we are or who we are not. There is one person who has the authority to name us, and it's Jesus. And he has named you his, and he loves you. He loves each one of us. What we will do with our lives has so much more to do with whether or not we will believe what he has named us or whether or not we will try to prove that we can be something that's worthy of that. When we try to prove that we are worthy, we end up failing miserably and making a mess of things. But when we receive by grace what it is that he says, the more we live and abide in his naming of us, it has the ability to bear deep, deep fruit in our lives. Let's pray. God, some of us are still carrying names, still struggling with carrying names that we're trying to work off, you know, that uh, playground name that we were called or that uh, ex-spouse who said things about us that cut us so deep or that boss at work, or that parent, or that friend who betrayed, or that stuff about myself that I hate about myself, that I don't have enough self-control to do this, and the stuff I see when I look in the mirror. And some of us, like Simon, work so hard to try to work out of a deficit, to try to be something else. But God, I thank you and praise you that the moment of redemption for Simon was not in the moment when he stood on a platform in Caesarea Philippi and got it right, but the greatest transforming moment of Peter's life is when he had failed miserably, when he tried so hard to do it right and found himself coming up short and finally got honest about it and broken and you're on that beach as a resurrected God in his life and you stood there and you said, I'll meet you right where you are and I promise you that everything that I have said can be accomplished in your life will still be accomplished, not because you can handle it, but because I say it, God. And we just thank you for that. So uh, we uh, include right now ourselves in the name Simon, uh, Parker Ford Church in the name Simon. We are who we are. We are who our parents named us. We're all that stuff, but we just confess to you our inability our inability to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to be all of those things. But then we believe with bold faith that that is not the end of the story, that that's the end of our lives outside of you. 
And that the beginning of the story is an entry point into the fact that where you planted us in our neighborhood, where you planted us in our family, where you planted us in our lives right now, that we, by your declaration, are the salt of the earth. By declaration, we are the light of the world. By declaration, we are children of God. (coughs) God, I ask for a renewal and a refreshing of faith to rise. That word, little faith, man, that it would grow, and it would grow, and it would grow inside of us. In the name of Jesus.